America. Your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. But it wasn't just another country. It was Cuba. As reporter Sam Lacey said when visiting Cuba to report on Jackie Robinson in spring training with the Dodgers, I heard the Cubans were a deeply religious people. I have learned that baseball is their religion. According to the reports, they were waiting for the girls. And we packed the stands every night. They loved to watch us play, practice. And in the games, they'd be walking around in the stands with the walk. Roll of money making bets. They follow us around. Oh my goodness, I got pictures you should see. I mean, it was like playing a game. I mean, they'd sit up there in the bleachers, follow us outside the gate. It was fun. They went wild over the women. We had 25,000 people. They said, Baseball Feminino, they're over there, they're watching the women. And they, we had to be escorted to the ballpark because those crazy, they live blondes. Oh man, they love blondes. And we had, you had to hang on, we had to have the security people escort us to the game, to the ballpark because they would steal your glove or anything. So we get into Cuba and uh, we trained there, it, oh, it was hot. And we trained there very hard for two weeks. And when they saw how well we played, they couldn't believe it. Dottie Kamashak was the first baseman for Rockford Beaches. They said if she had been a man, they would have offered her $50,000 on the spot. It was fun. They called us Amazons. Because, <laughs> you know, the girls over there are very, very frail, very feminine. And, you know, here we are, you know, tough. Throw like 16-pound bowling balls, and they throw that little tiny thing, and uh, out there play a ball like men, they just couldn't believe it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. How are you doing out there? My name is Tim Hanlon. And it's, of course, Good Seats still available, our curious little podcast, our little excursion, our little uh, our little uh, tunneling into the uh, vortex of the past as we uh, try to explore and unearth what used to be in professional sports. Thank you uh, for finding us uh, this week. And uh, maybe uh, your, uh, one of your friends uh, pointed you in our direction. Perhaps you're a longtime listener or somewhere in between those two. Uh, regardless of how and when and uh, why you came, we welcome you to the proceedings. And uh, as you probably know, uh, we love to explore lots of things in the realm of pro sports that are no longer with us for whatever reasons. And um, we uh, especially enjoy uh, going back to uh, leagues and teams and situations uh, where we just fully uh, uh, are uh, curious. We have more to learn about and discover from. Uh, and uh, there's no better example of such than the All-America Girls Professional Baseball League of the 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and as you heard there in our little intro, 
the uh, the stories uh, just keep on coming. And this one in particular with our guest this week, Cat Williams, uh, who has written a couple of books about uh, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, A-A-G-P-P-L. You say it fast. It's hard to do with the acronym. Is a little bit of an interesting sort of uh, uh, overlapping story of uh, certainly the league itself, of course. And we've gotten into a little bit of uh, the origins and the the various twists and turns and the uniqueness uh, of situation as well as uh, the uh, unveiling and the uh, rollout of the actual play of the game of baseball by these uh, very pioneering women during the war and then thereafter. But our little story actually is a little bit into the uh, to the realm of after World War II, uh, 1947-ish or so. And as you heard there, training for the upcoming season in 1947 actually started, and I think they went back a couple of more times uh, in seasons uh, after that, uh, was in, in Cuba, Havana, Cuba of all places. Now, we've, we've had a couple of uh, explorations of uh, of Cuba and baseball uh, already in cer- different circumstances, right? Uh, with uh, our pal Cesar Brioso, uh, we talked about sort of the the, uh, the leagues in in Havana uh, before the uh, Fidel Castro regime sort of took hold. Uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, baseball in Miami, uh, for sure, both in the minor and the major league uh, levels, uh, and the, frankly, how Havana and Cuba was actually on the roadmap uh, on, a, on a number of different fronts for actually major league baseball, certainly minor league, uh, but major league baseball, Havana before the, uh, the overthrow uh, was absolutely on the table as a possible expansion uh, locale for major league baseball. Uh, but I digress. Uh, our story this week, uh, courtesy of Cat Williams, is about uh, a bunch of things in particular to uh, the the girls' league, the women's league, uh, but also the recruitment of a number of uh, Cuban uh, women into this quote unquote All America League, uh, because uh, as uh, the uh, the ladies and their uh, handlers discovered in '47, absolutely a wellspring of talent in Cuba, not just from males but from females, uh, and we're going to get into the story of one of those ladies uh, who made the journey. Uh, from that uh, preseason training environment uh, to the show, so to speak, of the of the All American Women's League, All American Girls Professional Baseball League, I, women, girls. I, well, I call them girls at this point, right? Come on, let's uh, we're we're evolved, aren't we? And it's the story of a woman named Isabel Lefty Alvarez, still with us, by the way. Uh, and the story that Cat Williams has written is uh, her life story, Lefty Alvarez, uh, the improbable life of a Cuban American baseball star. And is emblematic, I think, of uh, now I know actually of uh, a, a a bold and uh, courageous bunch of women uh, who made the trek uh, ninety miles and then some uh, across the uh, the the ocean, if you will. It's hardly an ocean between Havana and and and, uh, and Miami. I mean, obviously, it's a big it it is an ocean, but it's obviously it's probably the smallest point of to the United States to play baseball. And, and it, this is a fascinating story on a number of different levels. Number one, again, it's another sort of uh, exploration into how women and baseball uh, interconnect. And uh, frankly, you know, this uh, golden era, this time when women were uh, for their country, <laughs> although if you ask probably most of the women to a person that are still around, 
or even back then, uh, if they were serving their country, I think that was probably second or maybe even third on their list. Hell, they just wanted to play ball, as we'll get into with Cat in a few minutes. But what a dream for sure, right? There's so there's that. Number two, it's obviously the diversion and the the spectacle of, of women playing America's pastime and, and trying to divert people's attention from the war. There's certainly that. And, you know, and women, frankly, giving up whatever lives they were leading, whether they be teachers or uh, in other careers or perhaps even as, as, as homemakers or, or whatever to play this sort of fantasy thing of baseball and get paid for it. Holy cow. But here's the kicker of this story, right? It's it's all that plus um, leaving your home country in Cuba, right, where you probably didn't even know very much English, as was the case with with uh, with Lefty Alvarez, as we we're going to talk about. She didn't, know, she didn't know a lick of English, uh, but she did know that she wanted to play and she was pretty damn good at baseball. Uh, and uh, the opportunity, once again, we get into this, it was, we talked about a lot of other episodes, given the opportunity to play, right, and having your bills paid and then some. Uh, is is probably just a, an indescribable opportunity, and but it's it's certainly courageous, right? Because here's a here's a literally a girl who's not even out of her teens or late teens, uh, getting the chance to come to the United States to play professional, believe it or not, baseball uh, in another country and uh, and in the great big fat land of America. Um, what an opportunity, and then what a life being uh, afforded. Uh, her and uh, a, a, a dozen plus of her colleagues coming from Cuba into the United States to play in this magical league, the league of their own, if you will, the All-America Girls Professional Baseball League. It's the life story of Isabel Lefty Alvarez, uh, as well as her Cuban uh, and soon to be Cuban-American uh, baseball uh, colleagues. Uh, as we get into, once again, another sort of angle of the story of the All-America Girls Professional Baseball League this week with our guest, Cat Williams. Uh, and it's coming up in just a few moments. Very interesting stuff. We try to keep it interesting. We do our best each week in, in our uh, exploration of such. And hopefully we will delight you to no end uh, this week in our chat. Coming up in just a moment's time. But first, we want to say hello and, of course, welcome to our pal Dustin Alameda out there in the Northern California and his great site. It's 503 sports. It's 503-sports.com. You know them. You'll love them. You can't live without them. They are known as the king of throwbacks. I don't know if that's trademark, but by golly, it should be. Dustin, why don't you call your, uh, your favorite trademark attorney and get right on that? Why don't you? It's worth a couple of hundred bucks to get that done. The king of throwbacks at 503-sports.com. All kinds of great sports memorabilia, handcrafted custom jerseys uh, that are not only uh, replica, but also uh, sized and shaped and, uh, and uh, compared to the actual items that they were back in the day. And uh, they're, they're tremendous. But, you know, if you go into the, I think this week is especially interesting, go into the, um, the defunct baseball section. Uh, and you're going to find a whole bunch of these kinds of uh, of jerseys, these handcrafted, uh, custom-made jerseys. A 1950 St. Louis Browns jersey could be very cool to wear. Hey, how about a Colts 45 jersey? Yeah, that's what the Astros were known as in their first couple of years when they joined the National League back in the early 1960s. Uh, Harkening back to a couple of episodes ago, how about commemorating the life and times of Jim Bouton and all his friends? During the 1969 Seattle Pilots journey, 
Well, they've got a Seattle Pilots jersey they do at 503-sports.com, as well as Washington Senators and jerseys from uh, various versions of the Washington Senators, for that matter. But they also have T-shirts. Look, you're looking for uh, the uh, Colts 45 T-shirt. They've got that. You want a Seattle Pilots uh, red, beautiful premium T-shirt? You got that. How about the Boston Bees? Yeah, going way back. All kinds of great stuff. And that's just... In the defunct baseball section, there's all bunches of sports and and all kinds of items and stuff, all for you to find there and enjoy at 503-sports.com. And if you want to get, of course, your your name uh, emblazoned on the back of your your handmade jersey, by all means, you can do that too. And uh, whatever you decide you're going to buy, or things, items, plural, make sure that you write down and use often. The promo code that we got for you, it's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS. That's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases. You want a jersey? Great, get 10% off that. You want a cap, a fitted hat? Great. You want a satin jacket featuring the Washington Senators logo from the uh, 1970s? You you got it. Go for it, but get 10% off all of those things and whatever else you buy at 503sports. And again, that's 503-sports.com. Again, promo code SEATS. Thank you to Dustin and thank you to you. Thank you to you. Sure. Thank you for checking them out and hopefully making a purchase. And uh, thank you also for sticking around for our great conversation with our new pal, Cat Williams, as we talk about Lefty Alvarez, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And there's some interesting stuff here that even you diehard baseball fans uh, will not have known before this conversation. And here it comes, courtesy of yours truly. Here it comes. Please enjoy. Maybe you can start, we could start our conversation with a little bit of a, a background about who you are, uh, what you do for your proverbial day job, and then we can maybe kind of, mm-hmm. you know, round second base and get a sense of like how and why this uh, this league that continues to just uh, dazzle and amaze and intrigue people yeah. uh, caught your eye. Yeah, sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, I am a, um, a professor of uh, U.S. women's history and specifically women's sport history at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. I've been here since 2001, um, and um, as I said, I was hired as a as a women's history professor, which is, of course, still what I what I teach. But but fortunately for me, Marshall allowed me to to grow and, and morph into a women's sport historian, which was my first love, um, not only from a teaching and research standpoint, but also who I was as a former athlete who played fast pitch softball in the days before Title IX and uh, all that that entailed. Um, so that's the, that's the day job, but the, um, Unpaid full-time job is that I'm also uh, the president of the International Women's Baseball Center, and we are a nonprofit uh, focused on preserving and protecting the the history and the legacy of girls and women in all aspects of baseball internationally. Uh, we are currently uh, uh, in uh, Rockford, Illinois. Uh, we are we are fundraising to create a 
uh, a center there. We've been we've had a presence in Rockford uh, since 2015, and while we do not yet have a facility, um, we are there and promoting women's baseball and uh, hosting fundraisers. And we're working on an outdoor museum that will focus on on um, all aspects of women's baseball. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the most recent book that I have out. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a busy woman, but it's uh, it's great stuff. It's um, I'm, I'm, I live a charmed life. Did you did you you said pro you said uh, uh, fast pitch. Did you play pro in the 70s by any chance? Uh, no, no, I didn't play pro. Um, and I was, um, you know, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you where professional fast pitch softball was located in the 70s you know yeah well there you go with that see because that we know that there was a there was a league and we we desperately want to get into it because there's um we have on our list of, of various uh, explorations I, I don't know if you're familiar with this movie called burn the ships which is a documentary it's available now out on uh, amazon prime and uh, it's the story of uh, one of the uh, former national pro fast pitch uh, teams, which is the league that currently exists. It was a team uh, in uh, uh, Ohio called the Akron Racers. And it's a, I'll, I'll send it to you after our conversation. I think you, you find it really interesting. Uh, but it, but it, it starts off with a very strong deference to uh, the women pro players uh, in the 70s. This is also when there was a men's league too, which we've uh, explored too. So, but that's, so that's very interesting in, in the respect that, you know, and obviously that sort of sets the table, I think, right. For what I would argue is probably the, was probably the first, you know, truly professional women's only sport uh, birthed obviously from, from interesting circumstances. Right. But uh, perhaps I think a lot of people in today's, you know, uh, collegiate women's games, as well as the various pro leagues that exist, uh, almost all of them to a person seem to always point back to the pioneers of this very intriguing and, and still awe-inspiring league back in the in the 40s uh, in pro baseball. I Maybe a little sort of setup of, of sort of what made that thing so special. Obviously, the circumstances are so unique. Sure. Um, but I would, you know, I would disagree with that a little bit um, because... Um, I and and believe me, I have spent many years researching, interviewing, getting to know the women of the All American Girls Professional Baseball League, and there is no one who is more dedicated to preserving their legacy and their history. Um, but you know, women have always played baseball. They've always played. They've always umpired and coached. They've always uh, tended the fields and kept the stats and and. And they've always been part of baseball since baseball's inception. Um, and the, the, the first league or not league, I'm sorry, the first women's team to get paid was the Dolly Vardens, who were uh, an all African-American uh, barnstorming uh, kind of league. And, um, and, and so the Bloomer girls of the 19th century and, and then, you know, the, the Philadelphia Bobbies of the 1920s. And, you know, there has been a long, long history of girls and women in the game of baseball. Now, um, that is to take nothing away, obviously, from the All-Americans. Um, 
but we can't we do a disservice i think to the long history of women in baseball if we focus only on them and their history because they stand on the shoulders of of you know decades of of women in the game now um, you know, if in, and when I'm, I teach a number of sport history classes. And when I'm talking about this in my class, one of the things I, I use to illustrate this is I tell my students, you know, if you drew a timeline of, of women's participation in the game of baseball, and we are talking specifically about baseball here, not softball. If you, if you draw a timeline, the, the AAG PBL is one small section of an enormously long timeline. Um, and, you know, women didn't start playing baseball in 1943 and they didn't stop in 1954. Um, so I, I always want to make that clear because I, I really believe that it's the continuum. It's the connection between the 19th century and those women and those umpires and, and so forth that allowed those women of the All-Americans to even have that opportunity. Um, and certainly the women of the All-Americans are the ones who really allow for all the other women and girls to play the game after 1954. So, so I always want to make that clear. Now, you know, but we can never overlook the importance of what they did and the importance of that league. And some of that, obviously, is the time. It is World War II. It is a time when, you know, and certainly in hindsight, and as a historian, I see this all the time, you know, this is one of our proudest times in this country. You know, we, we stood up. We stood up to evil and we beat evil. And everybody, everybody did their part. And those women of that league will tell you they believe they are every bit as much patriots as the women who were Rosie the Riveter or the women who joined the wax. And so we can't overlook the fact that that is set in that context. Oh, so, yeah. And, and I and, and there's no question that that uh, there's there's history, certainly before and after we we actually delved into that with uh, an episode two a couple of years ago with our uh, our pal film, film producer, John Leonidakis, who who has a series out. Oh, yeah. Yep, yeah, I know. Yeah, and and you know, obviously the 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 all American girls for sure, but you know things like the Colorado Silver Bullets, and you know there was this ladies league baseball thing, and and look, there is there's absolutely just there's a litany of of players. I even remember as a kid in the seventies, right? We had uh, two uh, uh, women, ladies, girls playing in our uh, you know trying to break into the baseball team at the time, you know, which was seemingly you know, a, kind of a, a, a bigger, you know, deal uh, seemingly at that point, but it's, it made total sense because the, and they were darn good players too. Right. And I think it's, so I, I think that's an incredibly important sort of backstop to all of this, because I guess I'm intrigued as to how, I guess why. And I, I think I probably know some of the reasons, maybe, maybe some of it is a certain motion picture that came out about 20 years ago, right? Yeah, right. That, which, which that may have something to do with it. Maybe overexposes it and, or uh, arguably maybe even trivial trivializes it, but you know why? Okay. I guess the thing would be why in, in this period of time during the, during the war, would it be seen that, that women would be, 
not only good enough, but uh, but uh, attractive enough, not not physically, but I mean, in terms of play uh, and as a distraction for the the diminishing availability of, of, of pro baseball from the male perspective. Like what would give Philip Wrigley the idea that this would be a circuit full of quality players playing quality baseball that would attract people to come to the game and pay for it? Right. Because it seems a little incongruous based on, you know, the long history and not so great history of baseball for women. Yeah. And well, I think there are two things. First of all, Philip Wrigley was very involved in any way he could participate in the war effort. Um, you know, he his company was very active in war production. Um, and and so there's that. But but the the thing is, too, we can't forget the fact that this was very much about Philip Wrigley and some other owners um, being worried about um, uh, the the health of baseball. The the um, and also it was financial. I mean, we you know, we, we can make this sound very romantic. And I think there's an element to that. And, and I'll get to that in a second. But but it's also about the fact that, you know, we're we are struggling to come out of the Great Depression at this point. And so so we have a lot of minor league fields uh, in the Midwest, for example, that are not being used. Um, it was um, mostly or not mostly, but early on, it was minor league players who were going off to war. And then, of course, as we know, there are a number of, of uh, major league players who did as well. Um, and so, you know, the, it, people were losing money. And so, so that's part of it. But then you add to that softball, women's softball. Now, softball in general for both men and women, but, but for this story, women's softball was huge. In 1939, women's softball drew more fans than minor league baseball. I mean, it was everywhere. And, and so when you have that already, and it was very, very popular in the Midwest, was and it so was it sorry, have, yeah, was it pro was it semi pro was it amateur was no, it no, collegiate what no, was it? it was everything no no it wasn't necessarily professional it was just in general the game I mean you know there might have been what we would call in the would have called in the 20th century recreational leagues there might have been something that would be considered more of a semi pro or something like that but it didn't have that structure to it necessarily. Um, but it was popular and people were coming to see it. And so then all of this comes together and Philip Wrigley, and he was not the only one, there were some other owners, but Philip Wrigley is the leader in this. And, and, you know, it's a brilliant idea, right? You have these women who are already, let's face it, they're going to draw fans initially because people are going to be curious. And so, so they, you have these women, they're good ball players. Now, now the women were not just from the Midwest. They were recruited from all over, but, but, um, they had a, a, you know, a pretty impressive crop of softball players in the Midwest. So those women showed up in 1943 in, in May of 1943 at Wrigley field for tryouts, very much like the scene in the movie where they all walk out onto Wrigley Field and there are all these young women out there and, um, and you know, they try out. And, and talking to the actual ballplayers about that experience, you know, it, it just gives you, it, it gives you chills um, because they never in a million years thought they'd ever have that opportunity. So, you know, that's what starts it. 
right? That's what brings it together initially. And, and, you know, Wrigley was only in charge of this league for a short time. This was like a season or two, and then it was taken over by, uh, Meyerowitz. But, um, you know, people came to those games, I think in the beginning, because they were curious, you know, there's a scene in the movie where, you know, there's a guy who rolls his pant legs up and he says, you know, girls can't play ball. And of course, you know, a third baseman holds off and knocks him off the dugout. And, you know, and, and I don't know that that scene necessarily happened, but those kinds of things happened. Um, but then very quickly fans realize, wow, these women can play ball. I mean, they're, they can really play ball. And so then their talent took over. And in many places, and Rockford being the, the, the best example of that, um, you know, fans just, you know, they loved the team. They loved it. They, they you know, all kinds of fans came to the game. They, they really, they gave these women, um, basically they made stars out of them. And, and so, you know, there are a lot of things that go into creating that league. Um, but we have to remember that league lasted till 1954. That's nine years after the war ended. So this was not just about the war. In now, fact, I, it was 19. Yeah, I'm sorry. That, no, that's, that's, an, that's an amazing factoid, right? Because that's uh, it does it does speak to. Uh, not only the quality, but that there was something more than just sort of, you know, filling in gaps, if you will, for for what was going on during the war. But you interviewed, you know, in your first book, you you did all these comprehensive interviews with with all these former players. What was it that, you know, either individually or collectively drew these ladies to come try out and play? I mean, I've heard various things from you know, for the love of the game to, you know, it's a, it's a paycheck to patriotism to it's something other than staying at home. I I mean, I, I got to think that the, the reasons why all these ladies decided to come out and play were just as unique and different as each of the individuals who came out to try. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, and there, but there are a few um, threads that run through those stories. And I address those in my first book, as you said, um, because that book is really about the impact of playing in the league. You know, there are a lot of histories written about that league. And, and I didn't want to write another history. Um, instead, I wanted to talk about what was the impact on those women's lives of playing in the league. And so that was my focus. And so getting to that, uh, one way I got to that was by asking them, you know, what what on earth possessed you? I mean, for some of these women, they were 16, 17 years old. They lived in, in small towns and on farms, and they had never been away from their families. And the next thing you know, they're on a train headed to Chicago. And, and, and so, you know, for many of them, the, the, um, the reasons overlap. First of all, to a person, they loved and played the game of baseball. They played baseball. They played softball. 
they played and, and the stories repeat themselves. They, they played with their brothers on the street or in the local field and they, or they played with a, a local team of uh, mostly boys and men, uh, but they were good ball players. And all of a sudden this guy shows up and says, Hey, there's a professional women's league. Would you like to try out? Well, who's not going to do that? You know, and and there's a there's an amazing story, and and I included it in my first book, and it's the story of Maybell Blair, who um, uh, she is from California, very good ball player. She was a pitcher, fast pitch pitcher, and and uh, a scout showed up and uh, watched her play, and he came up to her after the um, after the game, and he said, um, "Can I go home with you and talk to your parents? I'd like to see if." they'd let you come to Chicago to try out for this professional women's baseball team. And she said, Oh no, my parents are never going to let that happen. That's it. There's no such thing. Well, you can please let me come and talk to him. So he did. And her mother, as, as Maybell um, uh, thought she would said, there's no way my daughter is leaving this house with you. And I don't know anything about this. I, she's not doing it. And the scout said to her, Mrs. Blair, I don't think you understand. We're going to pay her $65 a week. And Mrs. Blair said, George, go crank up the car. I'm going to pack her suitcase. And Blair was headed out the, headed out the door to go off and, and, and try out. So that was double what her father made. And so it was the love of the game, but it was, it was just out of the depression and it was excitement. You know, it, it's, it's, it's hard for us sometimes in the 20th and now into the 21st century to look at the game of baseball and say, yeah, I would get on a train not knowing anyone. I would get on a train and travel halfway across the country in order to play the game. And most people are going to say, mm, yeah, I'm not doing that. But it's baseball. You know, that's what's different. It's baseball. And certainly in the 1940s, um, baseball had that reputation. So I think it's, it's adventure, it's, it's money, it's excitement, it's an opportunity that, believe me, girls and women did not have normally in the 1940s. Well, in your uh, in your current book uh, about uh, Isabel Lefty Alvarez, right? So uh, we can maybe segue into that for a little bit too, because the 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 quintessential all American girls, shall we say, that were being recruited or tantalized to to come in and try out and play, right? It wasn't it wasn't just exclusively, you know, women who played here in the United States. There was also sort of this, uh, if you will, almost untapped uh, uh, reservoir, I guess, uh, of players. In Cuba, too, maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of, sort of how that evolved. That that wasn't the case as the league started up, but it certainly became part of the matriculation over time, though, right? Yes. Yes, it did. And when um, Meyerowitz became, uh, he had been the um, uh, publicist for Wrigley. And so when he took over uh, running the league, one of the things he realized is that we need to expand this. We need to be able to recruit um, uh, more women to play. We need to, if we're going to grow and continue, we need to expand this. And every year they went to various places for spring training, just like major league baseball does, but they, unfortunately, and some of the stories are pretty hysterical. They went to some, some pretty 
awful places in Mississippi or in some other southern states. In 1947, they went to Havana, Cuba. And that was the same year that Jackie Robinson uh, uh, debuted in Major League Baseball. And they, too, went to Havana uh, for spring training. While the All-Americans were in um, uh, Havana, and they, this was already prearranged, of course, um, with a, a businessman uh, in, in Havana, um, they played a team of, of Cuban women who their uniforms were very similar. They wore the dresses. There was all a very similar style of play. Um, and they played exhibition games in what was then called the Grand Stadium in Havana. Um, in 1947, Isabel, and she refers to herself as Lefty. That was the, the, na- the nickname that her teammates gave her. And she asked that I refer to her that way throughout the book because she felt like that describes her more than Isabel. So that's how I refer to her. Um, but Lefty uh, pitched at that um, exhibition game and uh, she did not give up a hit. And she was 15. She went back to her house. Um, The manager, a couple of scouts from the All-Americans came back and talked to her parents about about Lefty joining the league when she was 16. And so that was uh, that's how she became involved. But she was not the first or the only Cuban to play. There were when Lefty first went, there were three other young women. And so the four of them went together. Um, But before they headed to the United States, they played an exhibition tour all over Latin America. Uh, They played in Venezuela. They played in Nicaragua and El Salvador. Um, uh, Lefty tells a story about um, uh, going to the palace and dancing with President Somoza. Uh, I mean, they were women's baseball in Latin America, uh, baseball in general was huge. And certainly uh, women playing the game was an exciting, um, unexpected, but very exciting time. And so it was those, that trip uh, for spring training that really brought the league to uh, uh, Latin America. And of course there were a number of players from Canada as well. Um, Lefty, came in uh, 1947 and she uh, she played um, until she injured herself the last year of the league and did not finish that last year. Um, but her story is remarkable. I mean, this was a young woman whose father was a policeman with the dictator Batista and her brother fought with Fidel Castro in the revolution. And that plays itself out in her life. Um, we uh, and, we had a. It's interesting. Cause it's interesting to know that that, that backdrop because you're talking about how how baseball crazy uh, Cuba was. We had a conversation with our pal Cesar Brioso about uh, sort of the a very vibrant uh, minor league and and frankly on on a lot of different levels. Or there's a lot of angling going on over the years before the Castro regime came into play to to even perhaps even look at Havana as being maybe a major league baseball expansion franchise. But that's just how, how baseball crazy the country was. And it stands to reason that 
maybe even disproportionately that uh, various uh, female players would be, uh, you know, uh, ripe for the picking, so to speak, for this fledgling female league that was coming up in the United States. Exactly. And, and you know, baseball, Cubans refer to baseball as the passion of the island. And that's the title of one of the chapters in my book. It's, you know, it is woven into the fabric of of Cubans, you know, when, you know, and the Cuban uh, people have fought for, for decades and decades and decades um, uh, to, for their independence from Spain, from, you know, it, it didn't just happen with, it, it didn't just happen with Castro. Um, and so when they were fighting in the 19th century, when they were fighting um, for their independence from Spain, it was it, in the early 19th century that baseball became so popular um, that it started to, it, and it was popular with what we might consider working class or the workers. Um, and it became so popular um, that that masses of people would show up to these baseball games all over the country. And that was also where they would start to organize. The Spanish outlawed baseball because they were they they thought this was the game of revolution and and it was also keeping cubans from participating in sports that the span the spanish thought were acceptable for example bullfighting um and so so baseball was it was the very fabric of of that community. Um, and last November I had the honor of presenting at the, um, uh, at a conference that was the Cuban baseball federation, um, in Havana and, um, through a translator, I told Lefty's story and I looked out at the, at the, the, you know, the audience and people were in tears. It was like, they understood this is not, Lefty was not the best ball player. Um, this is not the story of the best pitcher or the best hitter. You know, this is not Babe Ruth or, or you know, Sandy Koufax. This is this is this young woman who came to the United States at age 15. She spoke no English. She had no clue what to expect when she got here, but she knew she got to play the game of baseball, and and. That's what the game of baseball is all about, right? I mean, that's what we grew up. That's what we all grew up with. You know, that's that's why this story speaks to me personally, because it is very much about the way I grew up. It, it's, you know, this kid before Title IX, you know, I, I didn't have a place to play. But but if without having if without carving out a place to play, um, I would not have survived adolescence. And and it's you know lefty is the epitome of what baseball means or can mean um, to to some people and certainly she represents what I think a lot of Cubans would agree um, is uh, is a is a serious love for the game. Yeah, there's uh, there's another angle though to it, right? Of course, she she came with a handful of other players. Uh, what during that forty eight forty nine time, right? So how does that happen? Like, well, what is, what's the proverbial and and pitch, so to speak. How are they 15 years old, right? How do the parents feel about this? How does, how does she sort of, you know, it's also got to be this sort of, you know, maybe there's the, I don't know, proverbial better life in the United States or, or getting paid to play the game that I love. How does that, I mean, collectively and individually, how do these young 
Cuban ladies, you know, make that jump? I mean, is it is it that similar to that of, of American women who are being tantalized by this league, too? I got to think there's got to be even more either guilt or uncertainty than than just a, somebody from Oklahoma getting in the car and driving to Chicago for tryouts. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and certainly Lefty's story um, is very, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the engine that drove this was Lefty's mother, um, who had a very difficult life herself. Um, you know, education was not a priority for girls and women in Cuba. There were really very few opportunities. Um, you had to, quote, marry well. Um, Lefty's mother was very determined that their family be considered and had the respect of the middle class. Um, and and when her father, who who as I said worked for with Batista, when when Batista was overthrown, her father became a janitor. Um, and so you know there was this this uh, this idea that the family was going to be embarrassed. And so Lefty's mother spent years trying to figure out what is the thing that she's good at? What can we do to get her to a better place? Now, a better place literally and figuratively. And and so she even entered Lefty into a beauty contest. And and if you get the book, you'll see the pictures of Lefty. She was stunningly beautiful. Um, and But that was not who she was. Uh, her mother quickly figured that out, but then she also realized Lefty was a seriously good athlete. She was good at fencing. She was good at volleyball. She was good, certainly good at baseball, and baseball was their love. And so in Lefty's case— a great picture case, of her playing soccer even, too. Uh, uh, yes. Getting the ball, yeah. See. Exactly. She's an amazing athlete. Um, and, and yet it was baseball. Uh, because of the significance of that game to uh, to their family, Lefty tells a story. They lived in El Cerro, which is the neighborhood where the stadium is located. And she tells the story that her mother uh, would turn the radio on and listen to the ball game, but they would open the windows because they lived so close to the stadium that they listened to the game on the radio, but they could hear the fans cheering. Um, it was it was all about baseball. And so when this opportunity arose, um, her mother made sure she got a tryout with the Cuban team. Um, and so in her case, her mother was all about it. Her mother was, yes, let's go. Let's get this done. Let's do this. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, this is what her mother wanted for her. And in some ways, that's why Lefty did it. You know, it wasn't that this was Lefty's passion. Now, she loved to play the game of baseball, but it was not that she spent her whole life. Well, she was 15, but it's not that she spent years pining away for going to America. That was her mother's dream. And so she did. And and now I don't know the, the family stories for the other Cuban women. Um, I suspect it was something similar. They um, families often tried to find ways to to help get their daughters um, uh, other opportunities. And so I can only surmise that that was the case for them as well. Um, and so, you know, Lefty was her mother pretty much put her on a plane with a with a suitcase and a ball glove. 
Okay, what's this? Ah, yes. The new book by Diane Shaw. I am happy and ecstatic to recommend it. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Who is Diane Shaw, you may ask, and what's it about? Well, Diane Shaw is a uh, a writer of mystery novels and biographies and other, other great works. But before that, uh, you may have known her in the 1960s and 1970s as the pioneering female sports journalist that kind of broke through the barriers, the glass ceilings, if you will, uh, becoming really the first uh, major national newspaper sports columnist who happened to be female at the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, for, uh, for that matter. And uh, it, her book uh, is just, it's just chock full of great anecdotes. It's a memoir of all of her trials and travails, shall we say, uh, in trying to cover sports in this country as a woman. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, you young whippersnappers, you have no idea how challenging it was. And there's a whole generation and then some of female sports reporters and columnists and writers and, and on-air personalities who can uh, owe their careers uh, to the doors that uh, she uh, just uh, plowed through uh, back uh, back in the day. And uh, some great stories and some great uh, anecdotes. And, and one that we especially love uh, features a certain United States president uh, and uh, some interesting times when he was uh, running a team and then trying to bulldoze his way through uh, the old USFL, the New Jersey Generals in particular. Uh, I'm not going to repeat the story here. It's well worth <laughs> the price of admission in this book alone. And uh, we uh, highly encourage you uh, to check it out wherever fine books are found. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. It is published by the Indiana University Press and their imprint, Red Lightning Books. And we thank both of them uh, for uh, offering our listeners an exclusive free chapter download uh, right now. You just, all you have to do is visit this little uh, website and I'll repeat it again, because it's a little clunky. Uh, and you're gonna get a free special uh, sneak peek, free chapter of the book, A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps. Just go to this website, iupress.org slash jockstraps dash good seats. That's iupress.org. It's I, the letter I, the letter U, press, iupress.org slash jockstraps, one word, dash good seats, one word. And again, you're going to get a free special sneak peek, a free chapter download of the brand new book by Diane Shaw, A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps. Uh, if you don't remember that uh, URL, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com uh, off of this episode. And um, you will enjoy this book. I guarantee it. And I appreciate the friends, our friends, our new friends at Red Lightning Books and Indiana, Indiana University Press, hard to say, uh, for their sponsorship and uh, bringing our attention uh, to this great book by Dan Diane Shaw. He says, a farewell to arms, legs, and jockstraps. Uh, I know you'll enjoy the free sample, and I know you'll enjoy the book. Try it out, and uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right, back to our uh, conversation. Here it comes. Well, let, let me ask you this, sort of, it, it, both in lefties from her perspective as well as as uh, those generally i mean what what was it like i guess in her words because that's the story that you focus on coming to the united states because i can't imagine it was the easiest of transitions for these seven or eight ladies language wise culturally and frankly i i also wonder too juxtaposed with you know sort of this well known sort of aspect to this league right which was the I don't know, call it code of conduct, right? With the makeup and the how ladies are to be presented in public and, and the etiquette and all that kind of stuff. That That is 
you know, that's the, I don't know, uh, crazily sort of, you know, uh, a female definition, I guess, written up by males, of course, right? But here you are, here you've got Cuban ladies coming in and almost having to sort of Americanize themselves when they don't even know anything about the country and the language, let alone how to sort of put makeup on correctly, right? So how to, how right. To it, it, yeah, it, it, it was, um, you know, I mean, she was from Cuba. She was 15. She had never owned a coat in her life. Um, and so the, her first um, uh, story about arriving in Chicago is that this family, and she literally spoke no English, this family met her with a coat because they knew she would need a coat. And so she, um, that is her first memory. You know, she she talks about these these tall buildings and being in this place that, that, you know, she just had no she'd never seen anything like it. And so all of that is strange. You're right. It's strange. It's different. She doesn't know how to be. But one of the things she said to me, and I really believe this is true in a bigger uh, way, is that she often didn't understand what people were telling her. You know, she, she, she eventually worked it out, but, and this is not a direct quote, but it's, but it's close. Um, but when we were talking baseball, that was a language I understood. And so through baseball, you know, through that connection, she was able to learn some, some English, but also Baseball as a language, you know, baseball as this common thing, um, this way that now, you know, saying that was a good hit in Spanish is different than saying it in English. But in that moment, you know what that means. Right. And and so that's that's the thing that I believe really sort of helped her. She had that thread, that tie. Um, it was difficult. Don't get me wrong. She had some really, really difficult times early on. Were she and her fellow Cuban players, I mean, were they, I guess I'm curious as to sort of how they were accepted or not, shall we say, by their playing brethren, so to speak. Were they maybe also, I don't know, uh, uh, uniquely marketed as an interesting sort of component to this already interesting proposition of women playing professional baseball like I, i'm just curious how they fit in how they didn't fit in and or was it aided or or prevented by you know uh, their their ability to be assimilated right i i would almost say there's one part of me that that would think that perhaps lefty alvarez would have been uh intrigued and or uh, aided by uh some of the the process of being an all-American girl uh, in this, uh, you know, the makeup thing and the regimen and the the etiquette and all that kind of stuff, it almost like would almost maybe hasten her learning curve for becoming more Americanized and understanding this country. But I'm projecting, I don't know. Right. Well, um, in terms of how they were accepted, um, there are some really interesting stories. First of all, the four Cuban um, women room together uh initially and um and it, there's some some really interesting stories uh that lefty tells um a woman who became her very dear friend until she passed away jane moffett 
um, came to the league just shortly after Lefty did. Um, and Jane was this New Jersey girl, you know, same story as just about everyone else. And, and so they told her which room to go to in this hotel. And she went in there and she walked in and there were clothes hanging everywhere, drying, hanging from, you know, uh, cords everywhere. And she said, you know, what the hell's going on here? And so all these young women started speaking in Spanish, which Jane, of course, did not speak. And, and so that was the beginning of, of um, a lifelong 70 year friendship. Um, and so they both, both Jane and Lefty have told stories about their relationship throughout the years and certainly during their playing days. And it's interesting because obviously Lefty's perspective is very different from Jane's, but, but what Lefty says about that and about being part of the team was that she believed those were her friends, that they looked out for her. Now they made fun of me sometimes and they pulled pranks on me. Uh, one time they took her out into a rowboat in the middle of the lake and then took the paddles away from her. Uh, you know, some of these pranks were, you know, pretty painful, I would imagine. But Lefty always follows it up with, but they weren't just kidding. They loved me and they cared about me. And, and you know, I think that's true. Um, but, but I'm not sure. You know, these, most of these young women, in, in really by today's standards, they were still kids, right? And so kids can be cruel to one another. And I know that it was difficult. I know they, they probably, uh, you know, pulled... Uh, stunts like that. They, they, they did things that, that were probably painful for those women. Um, but, uh, when push comes to shove, you know, here we are in 2020 and now Jane has passed away and a number of those women have passed away, but, um, you know, they all still have that same bond. So I think the transition was hard for lefty particularly um one of the things that was most difficult was that in the off season she had to return to cuba all the international players had to return home uh and they had to have a contract in order to come back the next season uh the hard part for lefty was going home because her mother was very strict and so she found herself a sense of freedom uh when she was in the united states and so it was difficult of course it was. Um, but Lefty, and I can really only speak for Lefty here, and, and I don't mean to say I can speak for Lefty, but I can address this issue um, in terms of Lefty's life. Um, she um, she was okay with how hard it was because, as she says, the most important thing that I got out of that, I became an American citizen. You know, Lefty got a green card and then became an American citizen. And and to her, um, baseball did that for her. And so whatever she did or she had to go through to get there was worth it. That's very interesting. See, it's, all of this feels like it's almost the untold portion of this All-America Girls Baseball League. Because I, I don't think most recognize that there was this Cuban contingent of which... Lefty was was part. Uh, I I wonder too what her experience was on the playing field because uh, I I noticed that her playing days from what uh, from forty nine through fifty four to when the league ended, uh, she was she played for five different teams, right? I, was that common for 
her her Cuban player uh, colleagues as well, or was that just common to players generally because they were trying to keep uh, franchises afloat and and sort of keep uh, there didn't seem to be any uh, loyalty, but it seemed like it was all the league was trying to reallocate players as the season sort of presented itself each year. Right. And that was true. Players were moved around quite a bit. Now, it's also important to understand Lefty joined. Um, she played for the Chicago Colleen's and the Springfield Sallies. And both of those te- initially and both of those teams were what were considered the uh, the travel teams we might consider a rookie team. They were, uh, they did a lot of exhibition games. So they were, um, so she was on, on those teams. And then when she went to Fort Wayne to the Fort Wayne Daisies, that was kind of like going to the big leagues. Um, so, uh, now the, the league itself didn't break it down in that way. I'm, I'm using the language we might understand today for baseball, but, um, but she so so moving around was not uncommon. And that was um, now there were some players, of course, who played all their years uh, it, with one team. But but um, for for ball players like Lefty, who were, you know, decent ball players but not superstars, uh, that was pretty common. And especially if you started with um, the the travel team, the exhibition teams, um, then you you were likely to to move around a lot, which you would want to do because then you would move on to one of the other teams. Now, you know, she played um, obviously with Fort Wayne and 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 then left Fort Wayne and then came back to Fort Wayne and and then Fort Wayne became her home. And that that's where she still lives. Was there homesickness? Was there more assimilation? Was it kind of, would you argue that she was more looking forward, I guess, towards what this was evolving to and eventually becoming an American citizen? Or was there sort of this longing to perhaps, I mean, it, it feels to me, based on what you're telling me of the story, that this was kind of in her mind once she sort of got here and sort of saw the situation and, and struggled with the struggle. It almost feels like it was going to be a one-way trip eventually overall, right? Or, or was that in doubt as she kept going back every, you know, off-season? Well, you know, I don't know that it was it was a straight shot. You know, I mean, I think she loved her friends. She loved playing baseball. She liked being away from Cuba. Um, and, and, and this is important Um part of this. Her life at home was very, very, very difficult. And so it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's both a push pull kind of situation because, um, her, um, her mother was difficult. Her life at home was difficult. And so some of it was, she was just ready to be gone. She was ready to be out of that situation. And so I think it was, um, it's important to understand it wasn't just as simple as, do I want to be in the U.S.? Uh, it was also about, I want to be away from there. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I, I'm also curious too, I mean, and this probably then overlays pretty nicely with, you know, your interviews with, with the various other players too, is sort of what, what transpires after you know, after playing, right? Because uh, it seems that it was still relatively difficult for 
for her to kind of assimilate and adjust because, you know, and this is sort of a, a, any something that any sort of pro athlete or, or somebody who's played a sport uh, to the to the level of being a professional, right? Once the career is over, you know, mm-hmm. uh, unless you've had some preparation or some understanding about, about maybe what a segue could look like, it becomes very, very yeah. difficult very, very quickly because it's the only thing that you've known, right? So, so yeah. I guess the question is sort of twofold. Number one, you know, it was there a thread or a theme for for most of these ladies as they ended their careers and 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 the frankly largely seemingly wondrous time that it was into you know back into quote unquote society and and regular life so to speak, and then maybe how similar or dissimilar was that for Lefty Alvarez given all of her you know her challenges uh, uniquely relative to you know most of the other players. Right. Well, um, you know, there are um, uh, a couple of interviews. One um, I did with um, uh, a woman named Shirley Berkovich, who played for the Rockford Peaches. And she, you know, people ask her, what was it like when the league ended? And, And she said, I was shocked because I always thought this is just what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a professional baseball player, you know, and and there was this sense of, and she's not alone in this. There was this sense of, Oh, this is, this is fantastic. I'm going to get played. I'm going to get paid to play baseball. And then reality hits and Oh my God, what do I do? So for some people, it was that for other people. And this is one of the things I talk about in the first book that, these women made an enormous amount of money for women of that time. And what they did with that money was they went to college, they became doctors and lawyers and principals and teachers, and they, they ran businesses and, and they put siblings through school. I mean, they did amazing things. And in many cases, they sent money home so that they could help their families. So for some of the women, you know, they saw this as the opportunity that it was. Lefty did not have the benefit of understanding that even. Um, And so when the league ended, she knew, oh, I have to get a job. Well, that may sound relatively simple for some. Now, by this time, she, of course, does speak English, but it's, it's very broken. Um, but the real issue here was that she only had a sixth grade education. Um, you know, part of the issue in the book, uh, that I talk about is this thing with education. She, she was terrified of taking tests and, and it was just this, this awful experience. Well, she realized, of course, as an adult, many years later, that she likely had a very severe learning disability, but, and, and not having an education was one of the things that was most embarrassing for her. So when she would go apply for a job, she had to say that she only had a sixth grade education. So getting a stable job, she wasn't married, she was on her own. So getting a stable job was difficult. Now, one of the families that she lived with, the Blees, um, Mr. Blee uh, was in management at General Electric plant in in uh, Fort Wayne and and through uh, through him and certainly Lefty's own 
determination, she was able to get a job at General Electric on the assembly line, and that's where she worked until she retired. Um, and so, you know, her story is is kind of different because there are all these other pieces and parts that come into play. And one of them is education. Of, of course, the language barrier. Um, when the league ended, you know, the women who were still playing, I think many of them saw it coming. Uh, you know, attendance was down and, and you know, they, they could see this coming. But Lefty didn't have the ability to do that. And, and some of that was the language barrier. Um, and so I think for her, she had this attitude of, oh, okay, well, then I'll go on to the next thing. But I'm an American citizen, and so I'm here and I can do this. And so that it, it was a, it was very, her story is, you know, even if, even if you compare her with the other Cuban women who, none of whom stayed in the U.S., um, you know, her story is different. You know, and and so um, it, it's a story of of courage and determination. And I still, you know, I've known this woman now since 2003, and and we've had countless hours of conversation and interviews, and 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 I am still stunned by by the the courage it took um, to get on that plane at age 15, and and then ultimately to to stay in the U.S. and become become a citizen. It just uh, it's pretty astounding. How, how did how did you discover her and her story? Like, how did it present itself to you and, and how did you latch on to it and re- realize that this had to be a, a story that to be told? Well, um, I went to the the All-Americans have a Players Association and they have a reunion every year. Now, they, they have fewer of them. They won't have one this year because of the coronavirus uh, travel ban. But um, in 2003, I went to their 60th anniversary reunion in Syracuse. I was work. It was looking for a project um, uh, to work on, and so I was told about this, and I went. And um, I walked into this lobby of this hotel, and and all these women, and they're all laughing and talking. Of course, all of them, you know, older women, and they're laughing and talking. And, and this, this, this woman walks up to me and she says, you know, with this heavy accent, have you seen Jane? And I said, I don't know Jane. And she looks across the, the lobby and she handed me her suitcase and she said, oh, holy cow, there she is. And she took off running across the, the lobby with me in tow um, carrying her suitcase. And that's when I first encountered Lefty and first met Jane Moffat. And, and I, I just was immediately taken, but <laughs> she just was, she was funny and warm and kind and we became friends. And then um, the more I got to know her um, and the more I got to know just little snippets of her story, I thought, you know, because for me, the history of women's baseball is not about who was the best hitter, who is the best pitcher. It's not about stats. It's not about who was the first one to do whatever. Um, it's it's about what the game has meant to to girls and women, and because it, because of my own story, because of what it meant to me, and because of the way it saved my life as a kid. And I saw some of that in Lefty, 
and 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 it was we were sort of kindred spirits, I think. Um, and so over the years, she just continued to tell me stories, and 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 I thought, you know, this is this is not your typical biography of the All Star. Um, what this is, to me, the most important story that can be told about the importance of baseball. Um, and so that was the that was the thing for me. Um, and, you know, I, I love and respect this woman very much and, and, um, and what she has been able to do and what that league has been able to do then for girls and women who came after them. All right. Well, let me, I'm going to tee up the, the obvious question to sort of wrap up here. I mean, is this, this loaded question about legacy, right? And I, I don't want to get trite about it because I think everybody kind of, sure. But, uh, you know, for, you have a unique sort of purview into this, given all the interviews and the relationships that you develop by those those conversations. And certainly with this, with with the story of Lefty Alvarez in, in this new book. I mean, I am at once, you know, it's easy to see sort of uh, uh, as we sort of talk about just generally on this silly little show about sort of on the backs of pioneers, you know, uh, are created you know, especially in the realm of of mostly male dominated pro sports, right? I mean, there's there's just tons and tons of history about sort of like what happened prior to sort of make this kind of crazy large industrial sports industry business, right? Uh, what it is, to, right? It's these kids today they don't understand, right? But with the sort of extra label and or flavoring of of the women's game, so to speak, and women's sports generally, right? So much has been achieved. You mentioned Title IX and and all kinds of sort of pro breakthroughs and and the equalities, frankly, that have you know been historically uh, you know underdeveloped and and are finally starting to come around. I mean, after all this time, uh, but yet you know on the pro level, right, there still seems to be an inequality, I guess, uh, in terms of of uh, of the opportunities. Maybe there are some still that are, but you know, uh, national pro you know fast pitch, right, is is still what five or six teams right after 10 years of trying the WNBA you know still according to the NBA relatively you know money losing or, or uh, proposition uh, there hasn't been uh any you know uh, attempt at really uh, a professional women's baseball kind of league since the 1990s right and and yet you know, we've had more players for more female players in all sports who are you know, uh, better, stronger, faster than they've ever been before. And you'd think that that perhaps there could be, you know, more opportunities and more of a chance to, I, I guess I, it's just a, a, a dumb white guy question, right? About like why, how far have, have we come and maybe how far have we left to, to go? Um, and how does the, the women's league of your sort of play into all that? Because it's clearly not for, you know, for it's not lost. I mean, it's not something that should be forgotten. There's lots of good things that, that came from it and was an exclamation point for, for what exists today. But we're still not fully there now, are we? No, no, we have a long way to go. Um, you know, um, we have, as, a, as I said early on, you know, girls and women have always been part of the game. Um, and, and they didn't stop being part of the game when that league ended. But it has been hard um, part of that is because, um, uh, of course, before Title IX, you know, it was it was okay to keep girls from playing Little League, for example, or you know, it was okay to say oh, you can't play, you have to go do this, you have to 
you can't play baseball, you have to play softball. Um, and, and, and even after Title IX, that was 1972, you know, we still have, uh, you know, there, there is no women's professional baseball. Uh, and that doesn't mean that girls and women aren't playing. There are organizations like Baseball for All that puts girls on uh, hundreds and hundreds of girls on the field every single um, uh, summer. Um, it, it, but there's no organizing body to step in and say, um, we want or here, we're going to help create this professional women's baseball league. Um, now, I think Major League Baseball, uh, and, and, and I am speaking from a personal opinion now, I think Major League Baseball should step up in the way that the NBA did with the WNBA. Um, and, um, and, you know, they are, to their credit, they are doing some things. They have Trailblazer series where they, they bring girls in from around the country for trainings and stuff like that. But, you know, the time is long past. And I am very clear. I am talking about baseball here. I played competitive fast pitch softball. I love the game of softball. It is not baseball. Baseball is not softball. Softball is not baseball. And, and I am the strongest proponent of Title IX you will ever encounter. I think it is the single most, um, this, probably the second most important piece of legislation for women in this country since the 19th Amendment. But I am telling you, it is Title IX that, that, that helped to create this divide. Uh, boys play baseball, girls play softball, because after Title IX, there had to be what they considered, um, uh, you know, similar sports. Oh, here, let's we'll let the boys play baseball, you know, and an equivalent sport would be softball. So, yeah, here you go play softball. Um, and and again, it's not that there's anything bad about softball, but it is not baseball. And, you know. I I'll, I'll I could go on about this another whole podcast I could talk about this but I'll just say this and I, and and um, I think it is absolutely wrong to call baseball America's game when fifty percent of Americans can't play it. No, that that's well said and and you know you also think too I mean you were mentioning uh, the WNBA and the NBA and and. There have been in, uh, entreaties that uh, the fledgling uh, women's pro hockey league could be more uh, tucked in under the wing of the NHL. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, flirtations of women's professional soccer and and major league soccer sort of eventually sort of combining. But but you know, it, it, there there are you know many green shoots right in all these other sports, and and it doesn't seem too far fetched. I, I speak of which I. I, I know of what I speak. My uh, my younger daughter, who, you know, now is gravitated towards soccer, but for a couple of years she wanted to play and did with a few other girls, by the way, baseball, in an integrated fashion with with the boys, and because she was fascinated with the eye, the eye hand coordination thing and the speed and and it just it wasn't because she it just because it was like well why not right I mean there was there's literally no barrier in her mind. It's just like well this is interesting. Why don't I try this and. But yet, yeah. without any, yeah, well, that's yeah. terrific. But it's also, and you can yeah. see this with a lot of women's sports, and frankly, some some men's sports too. Without sort of that aspirational mechanism of a pro league, right? Mm -hmm. There is just a natural and almost sort of understood 
you know, uh, cul-de-sac, right? You can't go any further. Sorry, right? They, whether it's college or, or with a lack of a pro game, right? And that's, you know, I, you're mentioning all these these girls and, and women who do play baseball in all these different other environments. I mean, it's got to be dispiriting to, to a certain extent oh, yeah. that there is no yeah. sort of formal final place to go. Not that there's any, as other women's pro sports have shown, not any tremendously gigantic riches at the end of the, that rainbow still, but, no. but still no. it, it's no. something to aspire to, right? And I don't know. It's uh, yep. it. It seems unfortunate, and and you wonder uh, who all the other lefty Alvarezes and all the other women of the time of the '40s mm-hmm. and '50s. Who's to say that there wouldn't be another pool of great talent that could stock a league? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe modestly set up and mm-hmm. and and wisely financed. Uh, you know, it, this country is just is rife with with tremendous female athletes of all shapes and sizes and 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 talents that you know could absolutely stock a baseball league and then some. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. And in fact, I, what I would love to see the International Women's Baseball Center, um, you know, we are about preserving the history and the legacy, but we're also about using that history to help create opportunities for girls in the present. And, and um, one of the things that I would love to see is a, is a women's league. Um, because, you know, people say to me, oh, why bother? There's never going to be a woman in the major leagues. So what? You know, I mean, what is the percentage of boys who play uh, Little League that go on to the major leagues? It's it's tiny. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get an opportunity to play. And I would never argue that there should necessarily make way for women in men's major league baseball. Now, I will say this. If there's a woman who's good enough, then she darn well better get a chance to try. But let's face it, men are stronger, they're bigger, they're faster. You know, I, I played shortstop, and I'm here to tell you, if I have been run over and, and need and spiked by any number of players, but if, I, if that had happened to me, I'm about 5'4", and at that time weighed about 120, and if I had been run over by a 6-foot, 200-pound man, I'd been broken in half. And so, you know, I'm not saying that should happen. But why not have a women's league? Women, most girls and women want to play against other girls and women. They want that competition. And, and I just, I, I think it's a shame, but you know what? I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. And I think the girls that are playing right now, they're going to they're gonna force that to happen. Um, and I hope I live to see it. All righty then. Thank you to Cat Williams. And there are two books. Yes, count them that you uh, you want to add to your collection and uh, and purchase uh, wherever good books are found. Or of course, you can go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. 165 is the number. Uh, episode with Cat Williams. And you can uh, click on the convenient link to get one or both of these books. The first one is Isabel Lefty Alvarez, The Improbable Life of a Cuban-American Baseball Star. Uh, that is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press, uh, and that is the current book that Kat has out. And her previous book uh, from our friends at uh, McFarland uh, is also worth your time and effort, and it's called The All-American Girls After the AAGPBL, How Playing Pro Ball Shaped Their Lives. We made some allusions to uh, 
some of the interviews that Kat uh, did for that book as well. Uh, again, both of those are available wherever good books are found. Perhaps you're an independent bookseller. Uh, we certainly uh, encourage you to go that route. Uh, but if Amazon is the easier path, by all means, try to do so through our websites. Uh, a link to that. And again, that's at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com, uh, where, of course, you can also find all of the stuff, all of our previous episodes. Uh, you want to find our social media links, you can do that. that we're at, uh, let's see, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a Facebook page to us. Uh, all the links to those are there, uh, as well as you can find a link there to our email newsletter. Just sign up right there off the website and uh, you will get each and every weekend uh, a little update, a little uh, head start on what our episode's going to be this week uh, or that week or whatever week. Uh, and you'll be in the know, shall we say. And of course, on our website, you will also find what else will you find? Uh, lots of other uh, good stuff. You'll find links uh, to our, uh, oh yeah, of course. How about our email? Yeah, you want our email address? Well, hell, you don't have to go to the website for that. We'll just give it to you right now. It's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. There's a whole bunch of ways to follow us, to keep in touch with us, and uh, you know, enjoy all the great episodes we've had uh, for you in the past, and plenty more, I assure you, uh, yet to come. Before we run, I want to say uh, a quick uh, thanks to uh, uh, the folks that we got that clip from at the top of the show. Uh, that, that, that clip is, uh, I think you'll find that on the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League website which I think is aagpbl.org. And uh, it's also, you'll see all these uh, various videos as well on YouTube. And this one uh, is part of a series from the Grand Valley State University Veterans History Project. And they've done a ton of stuff in conjunction with the um, the alumni group of the uh, All-America Girls uh, League. And uh, this is great stuff. I mean, just tremendous. And there's a whole bunch of ladies who are still around and, and alive and kicking and then some. Uh, and just some great stories and real oral histories out there. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to get into some more of these uh, great stories like we did this week, especially in this case, the uh, uh, the Cuban uh, influence uh, on the quote unquote All-America League. Uh, fascinating and undiscovered stuff, at least for me, it was. And again, our thanks to Kat for uh, for joining us uh, in this endeavor. We also want to say our uh, great thanks to our pal Jerry Payne, of course, each and every week who does his uh, his best to put all of our collective pieces together and make it sound somewhat listenable. And uh, Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence, we tip our AAGPBL hat. How about a Rockford Peach, Peaches hat this week uh, in your general direction? Thank you, kind sir. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Once again, as always, please indeed stay safe out there. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, take care. We love you. And uh, see you next week.